everyone and welcome back to another episode of the History Connection podcast. Today in our episode of Unsung Heroes, we're going to be speaking about a man who grew up in slavery, who became a freed man, and then became the first one of the first people to open a black school in Alabama named the Tuskegee Institute. That's right. Today we're going to be speaking about Booker T. Washington. What's fascinating about him for me is just how he literally transcended all the different racial and different civil disputes that were going on at the time. And he transcended all of that to form a school that was based in a pedagogy and a philosophy of progression and education and understanding that in order to progress you must have a foundation of education it's a very fascinating thing and <clears throat> before i get ahead of myself let us start with some food for thought this quote here is by booker t himself and i think this helps a lot of the understanding behind his philosophies in really making the black person an independent individual. He writes that few things can help an individual more than to place responsibility on him and to let him know that you trust him. Let me read that one more time. Few things can help an individual more than to place responsibility on him and to let him know that you trust him. Powerful quote, powerful quote. That said, Booker T. himself was born on the 5th of April, 1856, in Franklin County, Virginia. He was born a slave, and he was born, uh, actually, as the son of an unknown white man. And his mother, Jane, was an enslaved cook, and they were living on the plantation of James Burroughs. Now, James, or uh, I should not say James, but Jane, um, his mother, named him Booker Taliaferro. And actually, she later dropped this name. But in fact, where the Washington part comes from is that actually when he enrolled in school, he actually added that name just spontaneously. You know what? I'm going to name myself Booker Washington. And in fact, not long after this, Jane, his mother, actually married another man named Washington Ferguson, who was also a slave. Booker spent his first nine years as a slave on the Burroughs farm. But in 1865, with the advent of the 13th Amendment, the end of the Civil War, and the freeing of slaves, this allowed his mother and his family, um, his other siblings, that is, to move to Malden, West Virginia. At the age of nine, he started to work in salt mines, gathering salt. And in fact, he was actually doing his school studies. He would get up early in the morning, go work in the salt mines, and then go to school very fascinating it's tough while doing all that I, I must I, I must figure from 10 to 12 he stopped working the salt mines and started working in coal mines but like I said he attended school during this process if I remember correctly he would be getting up at hours of like 4 or 5 a.m. to go work in the salt mines and then after that he would go after working from like 4 to I think like 9 or 10 a.m. and then he would actually go to school for the rest of the day and he would repeat this process and it was really tough but you know, he was able to transcend it. It was really powerful. In 1871, he began to work as a houseboy for the wife of General Lewis Ruffner. That puts him at about 15 years old. And who, who was one of the owner of the mines that um, 
his dad and other parts of the family started to work for. In 1872, at the age of 16, Booker T. actually entered Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute in Virginia, which was basically a school run by General Samuel Chapman. It was a school that was run for former slaves um, that were formerly enslaved black people. This was a school to help them actually develop skills to become to become assets to to literally the economy and to life in general. In fact, Samuel Chapman Armstrong actually had um, this philosophy being the son of American missionaries in Hawaii himself. He commanded black troops in the Civil War and believed that the progress of the freed men and their descendants depended on education. But it wasn't just book learning. The education that he was that he had a philosophy about had to be practical and useful, but also able to strengthen their character and morality. <clears throat> now, what's amazing here is that Washington traveled a lot of the distance from Malden to uh, from Malden to Hampton on foot, and most of the times when he went, in traveling these great distances, he traveled and he arrived at uh, all these places with very little money. His entrance exam to Hampton was literally to clean a room. And his teacher would actually come with a clean white handkerchief and inspect the room. And literally, you know, would go and brush certain parts of the room. And if it wasn't spotless, you know, the chances of you getting admitted was very slim. But Booker was admitted. He was then given work as a janitor to pay most of the cost of his schooling. And, or I should say room and board. And actually, for his schooling, one of the benefactors who was funding the school actually paid for his tuition. Because Armstrong actually started to realize that Booker T. himself was a, was a promising student, as you will see here in a bit. At Hampton, Washington studied a lot of academic subjects, agriculture, and learned lessons in personal cleanliness and good manners. His special interest was purported to be in public speaking and debate. In fact... Um, Washington was given the opportunity to actually speak at his own commencement, which made him elated. He was so excited as he was reported to have been. But the most important part about this whole experience that Washington had at Hampton was his association with Armstrong, whom he whom was really described in his autobiography to have been, and I quote, a great man, the noblest and rarest human being. It has ever been my privilege to meet. That was Washington in his autobiography on uh, General Armstrong himself. Now, this was also where Washington synthesized a lot of his educational philosophy and pedagogy because Washington realized that the advancement of the black person, according to him, was not just having, you know, handouts and just trying to be, you know, Hey, you know, you were oppressed and all this stuff, so let's help you get there. But he's like, no, in order to progress, you need to prove yourself. And the only way you can prove yourself is by becoming first educated, gaining these strengths of moral character, gaining these strengths of morality, and having skillful trades that would actually be useful to the economy. In fact, when he graduated from Hampton in 1875, he graduated with honors, and he was actually... He actually returned back to Malden, West Virginia, to teach 
But in fact, um, not long after returning to Malden to teach, he actually became a student at the Wayland Seminary, where he gained an education for about eight months that was really purely academic in nature and not this um, engagement in education, character, and, and learning how to be an upstanding citizen in society. But he gained a, a purely educational um, education in that sense, or purely academic in that sense. And actually, this experience really transformed his belief in a system that emphasized practical skills and self-help along with academic education. In 1879, Armstrong invited Washington to, to return back to Hampton and teach in a program for American Indians. And that's where he actually started teaching. And by 1880, there was a bill that included a yearly appropriation of $2,000 that was passed by the Alabama State Legislature to establish a school for blacks in Macon County. And when this bill was signed in 1881, this established the Tuskegee Normal School for the Training of the Black. Now, Armstrong was invited to recommend a white teacher as a principal for the school, but instead Armstrong suggested Washington, who was accepted. And upon arriving in Tuskegee, Washington found that there was actually no land or building that was acquired for the project. Since the appropriation that was actually laid out in the bill was for salaries for the, for the teachers. But in fact, when he came there, he found that there was no land, no buildings, no nothing that was acquired at all. So what he decided to do was like, hey, okay, this didn't phase him actually. He literally said, hey, okay, let's, let's figure this out. So he started to publicize. And actually, in publicizing the idea for the school, he started to recruit students, and he started to seek the support of local whites. And in doing so, <clears throat> on the 4th of July, 1881, there was a little shanty that was lo loaned by a black church called um, by Butler A.M.E. Zion. He also borrowed some money from Hampton's Institute's treasurer, and he purchased an abandoned 100-acre plantation on the outskirts of Tuskegee. Here, students built a kiln. They made some bricks for the building. Uh, they made some bricks for building, and then they sold those bricks to raise money. And within a couple years, they were able to build a whole classroom building, a dining hall, a girls' dormitory, and a chapel. In doing this, by 1888, the 540-acre Tuskegee Nas uh, Normal Industrial Institute had an enrollment of more than 400 students and offered a training in trades like carpentry, cabinet making, printing, shoemaking, and tinsmithing. And with all of this going on, this is how Washington actually started to gain notoriety because boys also started to study subjects like farming and dairying. Girls learned domestic skills like cooking and sewing. And on the academic side, Washington insisted that the efforts that were made had to be related to the subject matter and the actual experiences of students. Strong emphasis was placed on personal hygiene, manners, and character building. And in fact, over time, more and more teachers started to come and direct the programs that were going on at the Tuskegee Institute. Some of the notable people that came was George Washington Carver, who was a notable figure in history in his own right, of course, making different advancements in botany and farming technology. Furthermore, Emmett J. Scott 
and Monroe Nathan work. <clears throat> By the 25th anniversary of the Tuskegee Institute, this idea that was started in 1880, that became a bill in 1881, literally was completely transformed into this building where it was now 2,000 acres of land and an 83-building campus. In fact, by the time of Washington's death, it ha or I should say by the 25th anniversary, it had an endowment fund of $1.275 million. By the time of Washington's death, that fund increased to a $2 million endowment fund. At the time of the 25th anniversary of the Tuskegee Institute, more than 1,500 students were enrolled. And his efforts at Tuskegee showed that an oppressed people could advance. And that was one of the points that Booker T. Washington kept trying to make in what became a major rivalry between him and W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, they both had ideological differences that separated their ideas regarding the growth of blacks in America after the Civil War and now the Jim Crow era after the Reconstruction. Now, Washington believed that African Americans had to concentrate on education and gaining useful skills in the trades and invest in their own black-owned businesses to advance. He believed that economic progress and merit would prove to whites that the, va um, that the value of blacks to the American economy was one of valor. It was something that was worth being added to the American economy. I mean, looking at the philosophy of the founding, you can tell, or one can read in these documents themselves, that the founders believed that in order to be a citizen, you first had to be accepted by society. That was the philosophy of the founding according to the laws of natural rights that they had put out in these documents. And in order to be accepted by society, you had to prove literally your worth in order to be accepted. It, 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 their philosophy is one that is much disputed, but in the time it made sense for W.B. Um, Du Bois, but rather Washington to really go along these ideas. You know, in order to be able to progress in society, having handouts will not make us better. But if we are able to, to gain the skills that will make us valuable, they will know our worth. And that was his vision. In fact, he believed that his vision for black people would actually lead to equal political and civil rights. But he argued that the artificial and the artificial forcing of integration is what is causing the problems and the racial divides among the blacks and whites. In fact, he made this one speech in 1895 at the Atlanta Compromise um, speech. It's called the Atlanta Compromise speech. And he made this um, very powerful quotation that, and I quote, the wisest of my race understand that the agitation of questions of social equality is the extremist folly and that the progress in the enjoyment of all the privileges that will come to us must be the result of severe and constant struggle rather than artificial forcing. The opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than to spend a dollar in an opera house. He believed honestly that in order for blacks to gain progress, 
they had to be allowed to prove themselves by being an asset to the economy. Now, W.E.B. Dubois was on the other side of this idea. He was on the side that Jim Crow and segregation needed to be stopped now. Stopped now. And in fact, in this, this was actually the foundation for the Niagara Movement, which was later, which later formed the NAACP. But W.E.B. Dubois and the Niagara Movement Constitution actually make certain points here. One of the points that they make here, and I quote, We refuse to allow the impression to remain that the Negro American assents to inferiority is submissive under oppression and apologetic before insults. Persistent manly agitation is the way to liberty, and toward this goal, the Niagara Movement has started and asks the cooperation of men, of all men, of all races. These are some statements from the Niagara Movement Constitution. But regardless of what it is, one thing was certain. Washington did advocate for the maintenance of segregation because he realized that artificial forcing would not help relations. But if they had, if they could prove their economic worth, though they would be separate over time with proving worth, they would realize, hey, we're not so different after all. And they would start to integrate that way. W.B. Dubois, on the other hand, is like, look, keeping us separate and having Jim Crow on us is literally just showing that we're still inferior. Therefore, everyone needs to work to end segregation. And honestly, what's interesting is that people liked Washington's ideas at first. And in fact, um, they, he was well received by the whites of the South because they actually they actually understood this idea. They're like, yeah, of course. Prove your worth, and hey, we'll let you come and work with us. Like, we'll all hang out together. But prove your worth first, you see. People liked Washington's ideas. And, and in, in fact, by the, and he actually became a leading black intellectual of this time period on subjects like this. But, and by the time Woodrow Wilson actually got into office, his ideas started to become more and more obsolete as W.E.B. Du Bois' NAACP and his ideas started to lay a foundation for the civil rights movement and this led to Washington's ideas starting to get more and more rejected as, as time started to move on in that sense. That said, Washington was still a, a leading black intellectual and one of the best of his time. He wrote over 40 books. He became a well-known writer. And some of the books that he had written included Up From Slavery, written in 1901, and The Farthest Man Down, written in 1912. He actually became the first person to dine at the White House on the 16th of October, 1901, with Theodore Roosevelt. And, they act, and he actually also, I believe, spoke to William Howard Taft, who became president in 1909. So, in essence, he, all, he became a leading figure and started to become a counselor to a lot of the leading people in Congress and the presidency at the time. He actually died in 1915 
after suffering from arteriosclerosis. And literally, he didn't die very old. I, I don't even think he was 60 yet. But that said, he literally was a powerhouse in this idea for the black man to progress we need to prove our worth but in order to do that we need to gain education we need to gain the skills that will make us a valuable asset to the american economy that's the only way we're going to get accepted and in one sense most people actually agreed with this assessment w.e.b dubois on the other hand did not agree with this assessment and this is what led to their rift and really the idea of how do we move forward in the Jim Crow era. Now, one thing I didn't mention was, well, was the what what was the life of um, Booker T like? <clears throat> he actually did eventually get married. Yes. In the 1880s, during the time that he was building the Tuskegee Institute, he got married in 1882 to his Malden sweetheart, Fanny Norton Smith who died two years after their marriage. He had a daughter with her named Portia. In 1885, he, had a, he married another person who was a Hampton graduate, actually, Olivia Davidson. She eventually actually became an assistant principal of Tuskegee during the time period that George Washington Carper and some other notable men started going to the university as well to teach. She became a, an instructor, or rather an assistant principal of the Tuskegee Institute. But she died in 1889. He had two sons with her, Booker T. Jr. and Ernest Davidson. In 1893, he married Margaret James Murray. And she actually outlived Booker T. with his death in 1915. And she eventually died in 1925. What's powerful is that Booker T. literally showed that one can transcend from the annals of slavery and become a leading intellectual. Now, one thing that wasn't that is apparent about his story is that it wasn't easy. No one said it was easy. He had to obviously fight racism and all these different roadblocks, Jim Crow and all these things. But he showed that if you were able to get educated and gain practical skills that could be useful to America, there is room for you as a person, as a black man, a black woman, to be able to make progress. There is room. But you cannot make progress if you're just sitting there and being like, everyone's racist, well, I can't make progress. He didn't say it wasn't easy, but he said it's possible. And Booker T showed it was possible. I hope you enjoyed that episode today. I thought it was really one of the most interesting ones I've done so far. Booker T really had a story that I really enjoy. And I think I want to do more on leading black intellectuals because it's really opened my mind to the philosophies of the time. W.E.B. Dubois was a major intellectual of his own right. And therefore, I, I think it's it's good to be able to see both sides and understand the leading political and ideological ideas that were really contentious at the time, but also led some to the civil rights movement and others to the progression of blacks in general. I mean, both led to the progression of blacks. The philosophies of how they got there were different. 
that said, if you did like this episode, please give us a comment. Or if you're on YouTube, please subscribe and hit that like button. Until next time, this is Unsung Heroes on the History Connection podcast. I'm Michael Masangu. See you next time. Thank you.